0: off the court. I'm Jeremy Menino and today we're going to have an elegant conversation with Roy Blake. Roy is a master practitioner in NLP. I'll let him tell you more about that and he's been working as a coach for the last 12 years, a life coach for the last 12 years, specializing in health and well-being. He delivers individual sessions as well as group sessions And not only does he work with schools across the Northwest, but also medical centers and Fleetwood Football Club. Before that, for 38 years, Roy was a senior leader in one of the larger uh, academies in the Northwest, and alongside that was a national basketball coach. Roy's got lots of stories to tell us, and I just wanted you to sit back and enjoy and get to know Roy Blake's story today on off the court. So first and foremost, Roy, just thank you for for giving up your time and coming over this afternoon, and and, and because I know how much time how much time means to us, doesn't it? It means a lot to, to us, doesn't it? What does what does time mean to you, Roy?
1: Um, I think time's precious. And certainly the older I get, the more I feel that I've got to make good use of time Mm. and every day counts. And uh, I don't like it when I've not had a day that I feel has not been productive. So time's really important. And as I say, the older you get, the less time you seem to have to do the things that you want to do.
0: Well, you've brought up the elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room is age. And so you mentioned, you know, as you get older, so would you care to elaborate on What's your tender age at the moment?
1: Well, I'm 73 now. So I'm 73 i I'm still working. still working, yeah. still work uh, four days a week. I work in five schools and I work for two medical companies. Uh, I work for a football club and I do private work as well.
0: So we've, need, we've known each other a long, long time, haven't we? And we I have. think I, I just want to share this little anecdote with you because <laughs> the very, very first time I met you, yeah. I don't know if you remember the first time, because sometimes we have different views of when the first time is, right? Yeah, yeah. Different kind of perceptions of, of when that might be. So this was the first time I came into contact with Roy Blake. So I was in the second year, so that for that's year eight, and it was a, a basketball game, and it was at Collegiate Gym, which now no longer exists. One of the, the old-fashioned, you could smell the, the wood floor as you walked in. And it was collegiate against Hodgson, second year game. And um, as the final whistle blew, the score was (laughs) 4-2. That was, Mm -hmm. I think, one of my earliest basketball memories um, and my earliest memory of the the collegiate Hodgson rival. Mm. Uh, rivalry. Mm. What What was your first memory of our, uh, you know, kind of our first encounter? Well, when- uh,
1: well I do remember you playing uh, basketball, and then I remember uh, a big time in your life, I think you were deciding what to do when you'd left school and you weren't sure. Uh, but I knew and I wanted you to uh, continue um, with your education, because I felt you got a lot of talent. So I knew you'd continue with basketball, but I'm pleased to say that you did take the the route of following education and studying and going on to be the successful person that you have today. Well, thanks
0: very much. But less about me and more about you. <laughs> so, um, we've we've kind of shared. I mean, off the court is is a brand new podcast, as you know, Roy, and and I'm I'm really delighted that you've you've kind of agreed to be one of my first. Um, Victims, if you like, <laughs> um, but I'm hoping that we can really get to know a little bit about who Roy is and, and mm. where you've come from. Mm. Uh, the idea is that everyone has their own story, and this is your opportunity, maybe, to tell your story through through the medium of a few questions. So, I want to I want to kick off by asking, what What was one of your first memories? Memories are a bit of a strange thing, isn't it? Because I I think I've got a really poor memory. Mm. Um, And I don't actually remember, I I say this quite often, I don't actually remember many things about my childhood. Mm. But then when I get talking about it, things Mm. pop back in my mind Mm. and I I begin to associate more with it. What what about your first memory?
1: Well, like you, Jeremy, I I do uh, have a poor memory. I've (laughs) I've always struggled to remember what's gone on. But in answer to that question, I think my first memory, vivid memories, playing sports, different sports, football, um, cricket, in primary school. Oh right, okay. And, I and where, that where was that? From, I went to a primary school called Jesse Boot, named after the famous Boots, the chemist. Oh, right. uh, in in Nottingham. In Nottingham. And uh, there were many good sports people, and they encouraged sport. And uh, it's something I, I really enjoyed and I, I remember. and when I go back past the school, I can have happy memories about it I used to be in the playground or playing on the cricket field or football field. So they, they were they were fond memories. Um, can't remember too much about actually when I was really young growing up. Um, remember probably where my first house was. Remember probably um, my dad uh, who was West Indian. Taking me to to into Sherwood Forest I and mean, I played a game of cricket there. I remember, but a lot of my childhood was around sport. So you mentioned your dad. There was he was
0: he one of the kind of major influences on your life?
1: I wouldn't say it was a major influence because uh, when I was ten years old, he left and my mother brought me up. Uh, he went to New York to join his sister who'd. who'd traveled there from from the caribbean okay. and I'd, I'd never i didn't see him after that so okay. um it was it was something of a disappointment really that there wasn't a father figure in my life well there was until i was 10 but then afterwards it was my mother that was mother and father if you like and she did a pretty good job
0: yeah mm. fantastic so so talk to me a little bit about maybe going to your secondary secondary phase so you mentioned your first memories being in primary and mm. So cricket and mm. various other sports being mm. played at primary. So mm. what about secondary? What give, Paint a picture around, you know, what Roy was like at school.
1: Um, so school-wise, I was probably of average ability. I, I went to a, a, what they call a bilateral school, which is a concept I had then. And it was a school, a secondary school, but it had a grammar stream in it.
0: Okay. So people who'd, Still just in missed out, yeah,
1: people who'd just missed out on the 11 plus that didn't go, went, went to the school that I went to called Greenwood and I was in the, the top stream. I was never really academic. I don't think I was pushed academically. they were more worried about what I was going to do at sport and how well I was going to do representing different teams. Um, it was only when I went on to sixth form that I really started to study and take an interest in academic matters um yeah so had a happy um secondary experience had a lot of friends uh was made head boy so that was something I was wow. very, very proud of yeah absolutely. um yeah so fond, fond memories yeah mm.
0: and that was all in Nottingham
1: that was in Nottingham and yeah.
0: sixth form
1: sixth form I moved out of Nottingham to a place called West Bridgeford where I went to Rushcliffe uh, which was a, a grammar school and where I studied A-levels and did more sport. (laughs) And did more sport.
0: Do you remember the moment you decided, I'm going to go and be a teacher?
1: Yes. Uh, In my village, I lived in a village called Ruddington, which was outside of Nottingham. My mum and I moved to a, a small cottage there. I had a friend called Robert Morell, and we used to play in the same football team. And he used to say to me, what do you fancy doing when you leave school? And I said, I wouldn't mind doing what you're doing. And he said, really? He said, um, you know, I'm at a college called sager and I'm training to be a PE teacher. I said, I'd love to do that. He said, well, why don't you apply? I said, I will do. So I applied and fortunately I got a place. Um, so that, that was it really. It was following in the footsteps of Robert, who unfortunately, um, when we were at college, last year of college, he, he died. He, you know, he had cancer and I'm he died. Sorry. But he was a, a major influence on me when I was young great friend, and I followed him to college.
0: What was it about Robert then that, that, that you know, what, what sort of characteristics or what was it about him that you well, remember? I, that-
1: I liked him as a, as a person. He was a really good friend. He was a very, very talented uh, footballer. He just missed out on, on being a, a, a pro with Nottingham Forest. And he was kind of like somebody to look up to an mm. inspiration, really. Mm. And um, I, I liked him and I liked what he did. So I kind of like followed in his footsteps, really.
0: It's amazing how, how we make decisions that impact the rest of our life in what seems like, when you look back, what seems like split-second kind of decisions that, mm. that have a such a long-lasting impact to me. Yeah. You taught for how many years?
1: Uh, 38.
0: 38 years yeah. of teaching. Yeah. And, and what's characterised as an incredible career, certainly mm. locally. Yeah. And the, it,
1: it might not have happened that way, though. Uh, when I was 16, because we didn't have that much money and I was with my mother, I applied for a job in a steel mill and I was accepted. And I came home and I told my mum, I'm really pleased Dad, I've got a job. She said, no, I, I, I think you need to, to go on. Your grandma's left some money and that's for your education. And I, I said, well, can we manage? And she said, yeah, you must go on. So she said, this is what your grandma would wish for. So I'm fortunate in that I did go on um but that was a that was a turning point really would you say
0: that's one of the the i mean that that was my next question really about when you know when would you say your life really began would you say that was a beginning
1: uh I'd say it began yeah probably when I decided to to, to become a teacher and went to 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 train as a teacher that was that was a start of the of a journey that was you know, really important for the rest of my life, really.
0: And the, what was the attraction in, in going into teaching? Can you remember, was it was it something about the sport, which, you know, clearly was massive in your life at the time, or was um, it something else?
1: I think I wanted something where I could learn. I did start to really enjoy learning, uh, but that was active and that, that I could continue doing what I'd done and follow my career in sports so I'd play football, cricket, basketball, uh, gymnastics. I loved them all and, and this was a means to be able to continue to do that and then obviously help others and pass on information. I didn't know whether I really would like teaching until my first teaching practice when I was in a primary school and I really really enjoyed the experience. I can remember Uh, the the class teacher was called Miss Macandrew and I was really nervous going in, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed working with the children and I thought, yeah, I've picked the right path. I'm gonna enjoy this as a career. And then um, went on and had experiences um, while training in um, a grammar school, a big comprehensive in Ellesmere Port and a special school. So yeah, I'd realized that I'd chosen the right vocation and, and and never had any regrets to be fair 38 years really enjoyed it enjoyed the teaching enjoyed the coaching enjoyed you know the leadership uh roles that I had yeah mm. very very enjoyable
0: fabulous well we've moved you've mentioned basketball a couple of times so yeah. let's let's home in on that a little bit so yeah. talk to me about your first kind of memories of basketball and how it how it came into
1: your life so when I was at secondary school, we had a basketball team and I, I played, but I was playing a lot of sports and um, I, I, I really couldn't decide on which one to go for. So just continue playing them all really, mm. football, cricket. Continue at college, played basketball again at college and football. We were encouraged to play more than one sport. Uh, and then when I got my first teaching post, um i was asked if i would coach the basketball team and i played uh, locally there was a very strong league in the area i was in called the file you know a lot, a lot of schools a lot of people played then uh and i continued to play and then i started to develop a, as a coach teaching coaching and then went on from there you know it, it, it all kind of like took off in the fact that I I did all my coaching qualifications, uh, got involved very heavily with the school team and we had successful school Mm. teams for a long period of time and then took the town team and then got involved where I was teaching and then travelling to coach in the evening. So I was places like Stockport and Warrington and then ended up obviously assistant coach at Manchester United. so yeah, that's kind of like two jobs really. I, mm. I was teaching and then I was coaching and traveling a lot of miles, and then obviously games at the weekend.
0: Mm. Well, if I if I go back to the early eighties when you know I started off sharing my little anecdote about when we first met, I guess that would have been right then, wouldn't it? Yeah, that that's when all that was going on. It was. Um, yeah. So here's Roy Blake. You know, Mr. Blake turns up with his his second year squad from Hodgson after school, after doing a full day's teaching, and then in the evening you're off somewhere coaching or playing uh, and and that's how your basketball developed who, who was you who who was your basketball influence then at that time
1: there were many influences but i'd say the the, the biggest one was i was assistant coach i used to travel to stockport and um, I, I i worked with uh, bill Bezick. Bill Beswick, yeah. yeah, he, no, he was Bill England Bezic.
0: coach, if I remember he, rightly. Yeah, he was point.
1: England GB, yeah. and now followed on in his career and has become quite a famous sports psychologist. Right. Um, yeah, so he he worked a lot with Steve McLaren, who's now assistant manager at uh, assistant coach at Manchester United. United. Yeah. So he was a bit real influence, and he was a college lecturer at a, a college called Padgate, and he was the one that drove me to go on and do the qualifications and eventually become you know a senior coach and then after that um I I met you know the famous Joe Welton uh and and worked with him for about four years and learned so much and that was a pleasurable time 1985 uh, we won the national championship so played at Wembley in front of maybe about like 12,000 people. So was that, that with was Manchester highlight. at that time? That was Manchester. Manchester. Yeah. Yeah, was that yeah.
0: before they went as Manchester United? No, that was Manchester. Man- that United, was Manchester yeah. United, before
1: Bill be- Bill Besic had Warrington and then Warrington, Warrington, Warrington yeah was taken over by Manchester United. Manchester United then employed Joe welton and then we went on to to be champions in 1985. Um famous games with, you know, Colin Irish who, um, I think I scored about 35 points and had about 20 rebounds in the final. Really exciting times. And probably, yeah, I'd say probably the highlight of the basketball career, really. So talk to me about what
0: was so special about Joe Welton. Because I know you've Joe talked Welton about him before. As Joe being... Welton
1: was an inspirational person to meet. Um, very calm, um, very knowledgeable. He played the uh, point guard at University of Connecticut. So he played a really high standard of basketball. Um, just the way he was able to assess people, the way he was able to assess a game, make the right sort of changes. But above all, um, that calmness, that assured sort of, yeah, we can do this. And when when you're in difficult situations, everybody looked to him, took notice, listened to what he was saying. Um, he took... He took a lot of time to get to know the players and he recruited very well. He knew, he knew which players would fit and what he was looking for. Mm. And then he went on to have, uh, after that, and he left, he went on to have a very successful career coaching all around Europe. Mm. Yeah. So
0: you mentioned their relationships and him investing in relationships. Very much so. W- would you say that was one of the keys to his success?
1: Yes. He was very good uh, at, at managing people, creating a very positive relationship, positive environment. Mm. Uh, and um, he did his homework. I can remember a lot of times he would have me on the road watching other teams and reporting and scouting. Mm. And, um, yeah, he, he was very professional in what he did and deserved to be successful. Mm. Talk to us about what your experience would have
0: been like as an assistant coach with Joe, In those days, you know, with Colin Irish. Was it Will Brown was in the team? Yeah, Ed Boner. Um, Ed Boner. Jeff Jones. Jeff Jones. uh, Talk to us about what that experience was like for you. Full day at school, Uh, on the road. Yeah.
1: So I would um, be at school with the teams probably till about half five, six, get in my car, travel to Manchester, which is always about at least an hour. And then meet... um, with uh, Joe, discuss what we're going to do, discuss opposition, discuss any any basketball matters. And then we'd be on the floor from about half seven till nine. And then after that, I'd travel back and probably be home ten, half ten, then a bit to bed and then back to work the I'll next day. It. So it was pretty full-on days. But going back to the original question, the role of an assistant was... Um, I had to be the ears and eyes for Joe around the team, letting him know how people were feeling about relationships, a lot about the opposition. So I'd have to do full scouting report and report back uh, before the games, watch videos of the opposition, watch videos of our own team, and then reflect on my my thoughts to him. Uh, And then some of the, in the in the sessions, Joe would lead up a lot of the sessions, but then he may ask me to work individually with a player or maybe run some patterns or whatever. So I was involved on the floor, but I was involved a lot off the floor as well.
0: What would you say kind of you took from that in terms of into your own coaching later on?
1: Uh, Well, a greater depth of knowledge because obviously I was exposed to lots of different systems that he operated offensively and defensively. But really the uh, preparation when you're going into a game at that level, knowing, you know, what it is, what your objectives are, what their strengths, what their weaknesses are, what the stats look like. Um, Yeah, that sort of thing. So it was a lot more in depth than I'd ever done before, Mm. to be fair. But then stood me in good stead when I went on to be head coach myself because I got an idea of, what a more professional setup looked like.
0: Yeah. So talk to me about that. What that looked like then, head coach. Where was
1: your first head coach position then? My first head coach was I was offered a position at Bolton. Um, so I, I went to, to 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 over to Bolton, um, and coached there for probably about one or two seasons, uh, and I had. Um, John Stainton, who's a good friend, he was my assistant there, and then from there we went over to Berry and I coached and Barry in the in the in the in the national league. So yeah, a um, lot more responsibility I think when you had coach because the book yeah. stops with you. Yeah, um, exciting. Um, you know, we played in Division 1, played against many of the teams that I'd worked for, coached against Joe Walton mm. for Manchester United. What was United. that like? I was excited because uh, I think I think it was a two-point game. I think they, they won United on the buzzer. But it was great to be able to go back, coach against the guy who taught you everything and compete. Yeah. yeah. And I remember we, we, at that time, then had a player called Terry Crosby. Yeah. Who was probably one of the best players that I ever uh work with and he he was phenomenal could could do it all and he had a great game that night unfortunately we just lost by two but it was a great game Mm. and it was good to uh, to go and coach against joe yeah well
0: it it seems like um the question i've got for you is how's basketball shaped your life because we you know when a lot of people listening to this will know you through basketball Uh, particularly since it's off the court, and yeah. you know your association with basketball in in the northwest is yeah. is massive, and you, you've given us a few stories of that. And then, of course, your association with things like NBC and yeah. the kids you've coached. Well, but just talk on a more general note, just for a minute. Just how has
1: it shaped your life? Do you think? Uh, that's a good a good question. What what has it given me? Well, I've always had a A love of sport so it it didn't give me a love of sport but I think it's given me some discipline right Uh, in order of knowing in order to be successful at anything you have to prepare you have to work you have to understand about the systems it's given me an insight into working with people seeing people Mm. um, being relaxed seeing people under pressure Seeing people when they're at the happiest and when they're, you know, saddest, mm. um, yeah. So it's a great sort of education in life, really, um, but just through through the media of sport. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's it has it has taught me a lot, really. Um, and what else? Great people. I've met lots and lots of fantastic people. I mean, you mentioned before about uh, NBC. I can remember being in a gym. Uh, with my team from Blackpool, and we played against uh, Fred Crowe's team, a touring team. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was an inspirational moment when I met him, and it was obviously something special, and mm. I got involved, and then I, we, yeah, you were involved, mm. and we, we went over to the Isle of Man. Yeah. Um, meeting people like that along the journey and inspiring, you know, people inspiring you mm. and you learning from them. That that was that was great, and then obviously was involved with NBC, you know, ever since then. Yeah, like you have, so yeah, that's that's been interesting. So let's go
0: let's go back to to the um, I think it was the early nineties. I I, I I racked my brains for this one. I, I fancy it being either ninety one or ninety two, but it it could have been ninety three. So we'll just say early nineties. Yeah, yeah. So Fred turns up with his his tour team. This is Hodgson. Sports Hall. I think no, it was no, it was Thornton. It was Thornton. Okay, Thornton, so there you go. So yeah. My memory there. You're, you got a better memory than me. Yeah. Thornton. So, talk to us about what how special that was because clearly that had an impact on us both. But what was it about meeting Fred for the first time and that that, that kind of opened that relationship
1: in nineteen eighty four? Um, um, I'd met my wife Jane and. Um, she took me to a church, and I I became a Christian, uh, and that was a, a big turning point in my life to you know so accept uh, God into my life, uh, and it, it almost seemed as though it was a you know it was a, a coming together of, of, of what I you know what I was learning on my journey in life, and then meeting Fred, it seemed as though that's that was meant to be and um, he inspired me and he was a person that um, I was able to link you know, uh, my faith and also sports and there's not been that many people I've been able to do that with so that was no. a, a huge moment and then just how friendly he was um, how knowledgeable he was and, and his absolute desire to come and set up a camp uh, mm. in this country now he ran a huge organization in the states and you're thinking how honored are we that he wants to actually mm. come but he did and it was almost as though you know i'm coming i'm going to set things up uh and uh, you know and, and he did that mm. we went over to the isle of man and we had a lovely venue there and then i ever, ever since that you know you know all about the rest it's continued <laughs> to thrive but that that was that was a really big moment Mm. Um, it was a big moment, and uh, he was probably uh, one of the most inspirational men I'd ever met, and had a big impact on on me and the mm. way I thought about things. Yeah,
0: mm. he certainly was a special guy. I've got his book here, Words of Hope, on our uh, on our table, um, the last book he wrote, um, which I, I'd like you to take away today. Anyway, um, okay. thanks, sir. 1984, Roy, you became a Christian. Mm. What did that mean to you? Well, in terms of change,
1: I think that I'd always had a seed that was planted within me, mm. but it had never really grown. And that seed came from my grandma. And my grandma was quite, you know, a religious person, and my grandfather. My mother, not so much. And I think that was um, that she'd been to church a lot, but her life had not led her to follow in her faith. But she always encouraged me to be able to, you know, go to church. And I used to play for a team called Parliament Street Methodist in Nottingham when I was very, very young. So I did have a connection with the church, but I'd never followed the faith, never followed it. When I met Jane and I I, I went to church, it actually came back. And all the pieces fitted. I can remember when my grandma died, my mother said, this is the King James Bible, and, you, you, you know, your grandma wanted you to have this. Didn't say any more. Didn't say what I got to do. But so the seeds have been planted. But then right. in 1984, it's almost as though the seeds grew, and that that was you know an important phase for me in, in my life and my family. And what does it mean to you today? Uh, I believe that my faith uh, has provided me with a purpose. So I understand what it is that I need to do and that that is that's been given to me by God. So it's not sort of like, oh, you've done all this yourself. The the, the, the growth or whatever's happening in my life is come through. It's my face. Planted yeah, yeah, pre planted. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I believe. Yeah. Um and it's been important. We live in a very, very turbulent almost like upside down world when lots of things are going on and you can't understand them mm. and people would say you know well if there is a god why is what's happening in the middle east or why is what's happening in ukraine happening but i don't think that that's the way i'd look at it i look at it from a a a, a point of uh, um, almost like god's a rock and he doesn't change and he provides values and he provides a path, and if you follow that path, you can find happiness and you can help others to find their path. So that, that's that's what that's what faith means to me. Okay. Um so yeah, that, that's where where I'm up to. Some really.
0: big I mean some big stuff there. We we could definitely get into a theological debate, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah. But it's quite interesting that you bring it right bang up to date today and because of course th- those are the reasons why people might um might not have faith today or might pick holes in religious faith um the the conflicts and the upside down nature of the world you're absolutely Mm. right Mm. but for you you're almost you're almost saying we've got we've got some responsibility as human beings you know god's the rock god's the 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 thing that's unchanging it's us that change it's us that that have created the chaos yes uh, when it's us that need to find the peace yeah and we can find that peace through god so i think i think it's it's a lovely way of looking at it certainly i'm I'm sure that it's it's shared by many Mm. um and it's something that that i've been exposed to since since the early 80s through mbc too you know because it's a it's a funny it's a funny way people come to either faith or understanding religion or having exposure to spirituality isn't it and not many would say well it, that's come through basketball um would you say NBC has strengthened yeah your your, your faith or your yeah, journey
1: yes um i i, I think that mbc and meeting the people of mbc has has almost linked things. Um, before 1984, I was um, in love with the sport and probably the sport, if I'm honest, had become God. That was what it was all about. But then I realized there's more than basketball and obviously then becoming a Christian, I understood what the journey was. Where I was in it, perspective. What, yeah, I had some sort of perspective which I didn't have before, and I think we can do that in life. We can make anything become our God if we wish, but God's God, and and that that kind of happened in 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 the eighties. So yeah, it's been important. NBC important. Yeah, NBC important for 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 my children. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben, Christian, and Rosie have all been influenced by meeting people from around the world sharing values, understanding how sport can be a vehicle uh, for, for love and, and, and sharing, and, and the right sort of values. Mm. Um, I, I don't think it's any ch- by you know chance that NBC's lasted so long. And it's lasted because it's got firm beliefs and values. It's got a fantastic identity and it has a real purpose. Mm. So those sort of things, Tend to last, and and that's why I think NBC's done as well, and will do in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, food for thought indeed. So I, w- I want to kind of just take us maybe away from from basketball, if I could. Yeah. Um, well, you took us away actually, to be honest, by by throwing in some some of those some of those personal beliefs, which which are lovely to hear about. And I want to ask you about joy. So. Joy, I love the word joy because it's, I don't know if you, you would agree, but it's far richer than the word happiness. You know, joy kind of evokes this wholesome, longer lasting and deeper um, happiness for me. I don't know mm. whether you'd agree or not, but mm. th- that's what it is for me. So that's mm. that's my definition of joy. Mm. When When have you been most joyful in your life, would you say?
1: That's a good question, and I possibly think the birth of uh, Rosie, my daughter, um, it was a time uh, for me of, um, well, let's put it this way it wasn't an easy birth, and I was at the birth. So there was um, a lot of prayer, and a lot of relief, and a lot of joy that eventually that she was she was okay yeah and it was one of these fantastic moments and that seems to you know that what you were talking about before that great feeling yeah that feeling of of happiness that was there then um so that was a special moment Mm. yeah for me
0: well, kids uh, uh, definitely bring out the joy in us, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about Rosie's journey then, because I mean, I know I've been part of Rosie's journey, only a tiny part. Yeah, uh, taught her for for a little while mm. um, when when she came through Baines. Mm. Um, I mean, your you, you, your face lights up when you talk about Rosie. I don't know if you realise that, but you do. <laughs> uh, and I know how incredibly proud you are of her. And mm. she's uh, recently
1: married, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Rosie um, grew up, and I would remember my two sons went to my school, to Hudson, and Rosie said that she didn't want to go. Um, <laughs> and I said, "Why?" Well, she said, "Well, I don't want to be at the same school that you're at." Which I, get, yeah, no, I did, I did get it. Okay. But uh, then, then she went to to Baines, the you know local local school rosie has always had to work hard to achieve anything in life so academically she wasn't naturally gifted but she's worked at it and i think that's probably the most you know and we were talking jane and my wife the other day about her that's the thing that gives us most pride she's quite resilient quite hard working doesn't give up hasn't found things easy but eventually got there so um Proud to say now that last uh, summer she did get married to to, uh, to Alex. And that was a lovely occasion. Um, she now follows her passion. She loves animals. And she's um, a lecturer at Myerscough College, just qualified. So, um, yeah, she's, 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 she's done well, Rosie. And as I say, great for me to see um, that she's shown patience because it's not always easy to achieve what you want to yeah. and it does take time and I think that's one of the things I'd, I'd learned from what she's done you know eventually if you work hard and you're patient you can get to be where you want to
0: be yeah and I think it's I don't know whether you'd agree but I think it's harder for us at work in education that that we we conform to this journey where kids are supposed to hit certain um, points in their you know certain things they're supposed to achieve at certain ages with their GCSEs or key stage 2 or A levels etc go off to uni all at a certain point in their life but not all kids are the same.
1: I totally agree with that Um, we're all on a journey but uh, we go at different paces and I don't think it's necessarily that you do have to hit certain marks at certain times. The important thing is that you know where you want to go and you work towards it. Mm. It may take you a short time, it may take you a longer time, that doesn't matter, yeah. but that you keep going and you keep mo- uh, keep moving and that you, know, you, you have a open mind and you do feel that things can be uh, achieved. Mm. I think one of the greatest things i was thinking this the other day you know what what's the thing that's that's really really important that 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 you've learned maybe from your faith or maybe from friends maybe from somebody like you but i think one of a great great word now but i remember hearing a sermon about it a good while ago is patience Mm. i think in in the modern world often we don't show enough patience We want things in our time. We want them now. We want them in certain orders. And it doesn't always work that way. No. You know, if you're going to achieve something, it might take a longer longer period of time. Mm. You might have to come at it from different areas. But patience, I think, is really, really important.
0: Mm. I think it's a good one to reflect on, isn't it? Because I'm not sure the pace of modern day life, the increased number of expectations that are put on us at work, for example... Mm. Uh, for the increased expectations from our family members etc they don't necessarily lend themselves to being patient they lend themselves to making quick fire decisions, getting the job done, moving on Um, but actually sometimes you just got to recognise that you've got to slow down be patient and Mm. things will come at their own pace Um, and it's it's quite a a lovely thing just to reflect on isn't
1: it? Yeah it is Um, since uh i've done latterly for the last 12 years i've been involved in life coaching and i've uh, studied uh, neuro-linguistic programming and uh, use it quite heavily in the work that i do now but one of the interesting things is the uh, impact that neuroscience has had upon the way that we behave and mm. I'm particularly interested in that concept of patience with regard to to the way the brain works and um, without going into too much detail there are there's a um, two areas of the brain um, one's a limbic system which controls all our all our emotions And then uh, we've got the neocortex, which is the the calm brain, the one where we're logical and we're rational and we're able to think. Now, a lot of the time, I think that people are impatient or move at a a time and can't see things because they're in their emotional brain. Mm -hmm. So as you get older, it's good that you can realise ways of calming yourself and being able to, to think And when you're able to think, I think that is a a time when you are more likely to be uh, patient and and not wanting everything at the present time.
0: Mm. More likely to make better decisions. A lot more likely to. More likely to be empathic, more likely to be loving, more likely to be caring. Exactly. it only comes
1: from kind
0: of coming out of the emotional side of the brain. And and
1: you you know, as I say, going back to my work, a lot of my work is on uh, mental health, know positive thinking Mm. growth mindsets and then on uh, emotional health Mm. in other words how do you manage your emotional brain Mm. what do you do to be able to to give you that calm that reflection what sort of things you know can you do to be able to remain in in a a calm state Mm. and not let the world and your emotions affect you Mm. it's interesting we've
0: we've come back to patience and and feeling calm And that's where we started with Joe Welton. You know, when I asked you about, you know, what was Joe's greatest strength, you said being mm. calm. You know, mm. it's interesting that, that mm. that's that's something that you're drawn to almost, mm. potentially. Mm. Um, well, I can yeah. give you
1: an example of that, if you like. Yeah, please do. Well, when, I, when I'd um, studied, obviously, as you do, if you want to be a coach, you'd studied lots of coaches. And I used to study a lot of... American coaches and sort of in the locker room, that type of thing. Mm. And there was always a lot of emotion, you know, language, swearing, cursing, all that. And when I when I was listening to him, that didn't happen. It was more about his body language and being calm and very clear about what it is that each person, what each person was supposed to be doing. And then the, you know the players had come in whether they were down, up, you know, sort of in this emotional state that we've been talking yeah. about. And within a minute or so, it got everybody calm and listening and ready to go. That was something new; I hadn't not seen that before.
0: That was NLP before NLP. Yeah, yeah. And
1: uh, that was kind of like opposite to the way I used to be. I used to be a bit of a baller and shouter, and you know kind of made probably too emotional but you learn these things um you know sometimes emotions uh yeah you do need to raise your voice and say a few things but if that's going on all the time people just switch off whereas if you're in that brain that you talked about that logical brain people can think and take on board what you're actually saying so it's about creating the right sort of environment Mm. which he did very well yeah yeah, absolutely. Oh, and also I should say during the game. So in the heat of the game, you know, you're playing in front of a massive crowd, the TV lights on, everything like that. Okay, still and the, calm. And the, the TV's cameras right in on you on your timeout, and there he is, nice and calm, mm-hmm. explaining. Got his board out there, and you're thinking, this is amazing. How's he yeah. doing this? Yeah, you know. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, let me ask you this question then. So. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be?
1: A very interesting question. Um, I think that I haven't travelled enough. I am, I am envious of you. <laughs> You're a travelled man. Um, through family, through circumstances, through jobs, I've been a bit of a home bird. And I think if I had my time again, I would, I would. I need to plan or to see and do more things. There's a lot of things to do in the world, but when you're busy, you can get that busy that you don't actually do them. So that would be a regret. I'd like to have gone to South America. I'd like to have gone to China. I'd like to sort of gone to Australia. These types of papers, that, that's what I would like to do. Uh, but... Not being able to do itself, so that's a bit of a regret, really.
0: Do you think if you if you were able to do that, or you had been able to do that, you would have been a different person today?
1: I don't really know whether I would have been different. Possibly because like your experiences shape you, don't you? Mm-hmm. I know I might have seen other cultures and got interested in other things. Uh, I've not been, so I don't know. No, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, I have been to Europe, I've, I've traveled sure. a lot in Europe, um, but I've not, do, you know, and I've been to the States, but I've not done a lot of traveling other than that.
0: Well, there's plenty of time left, Roy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you need to stop working, <laughs> like, stop yeah, working, and yeah, start traveling. You'll, you'll
1: have to give me some advice, <laughs> yeah, Jeremy. <laughs> I can give me some
0: advice. So, when it, what one of the, the foundation stones you mentioned, one of the foundation stones of NBC. Um, around its faith and um, another one of the foundation stones is is positive mental attitude PMA yes how positive would you describe yourself
1: Uh, well it's difficult for me to judge on me I think it's 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 more important from me listening to what other people say to say whether I'm positive obviously in doing my job
0: maybe I should ask what would Jane say yeah
1: yeah, yeah, good good question I'm not sure what Jane would say but uh, no so yeah when I'm working with people and particularly working with a lot of people with mental health issues this always comes up and that particular phrase that you used before PMA positive mental attitude I did make some kind of like two minute videos and that was one of them Right. About mental health and having a positive mental- at- attitude and I do think that you um you cannot have to work at it, but I do work at it and I'll tell you how so I work at it every day in in my in prayers I always say my prayers in the morning and um and that's a positive experience but then I've developed a new um Way of thinking something that I read or something that I picked up, which really helps, it's called an attitude of gratitude. And what you have to do, and you don't have to be religious to do this, is when you wake up in the morning, you speak to the universe and you say to the universe three things that you're thankful for in your life mm. every day. Now, that is positive, it's good for the mind, and then from the neuroscientific point of view if you show an attitude of gratitude if you show gratitude about anything okay it it releases this chemical within the brain called dopamine so it makes you feel better so like when we give a gift often people think it's great to receive the gift but it's also good to give the gift because it makes you feel better so Thinking about being positive is really, really important, but also to your health and Mm well-being. And there's thoughts, schools of thoughts, where if you have a positive attitude to life, you can live 10 Mm -hmm. to 15 years longer. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot invested in it. We can easily move into negative thought patterns, but then we have to... Um, think about what we're thinking and if it's negative change it to a positive now again that takes skills takes training but again when you're working with people or you're working with yourself think about what you're thinking and if it's negative change it because if you go on too long in negative thinking it then leads to negative feelings which leads to negative behavior and it's like a washing machine it whirls around it's difficult to get out of mm-hmm. so it's a very interesting question um, and equally that that cycle that you just
0: described there of negativity yeah that that might start from a from a thought leading to a feeling and, and, and go into a behavior debating. yeah that can equally happen with positive thoughts right it,
1: exactly and the and the, and the beauty about positive thoughts is often when we have positive thoughts, these chemicals that I'm talking about. So instead of having anxiety and depression mm. and anger, you release the chemicals, mm. the feel-good chemicals, mm. and it makes you feel good. Mm. So there's a, if you like, neurological basis mm. for also having positive thoughts. So people just say, oh, yeah, you should be positive or have a positive mindset, but they don't actually always say why, and mm. they don't say why you should have an, an attitude of gratitude. Mm. And obviously, there are many, many, many people in the world that pray. And when they're praying, that obviously, you know, gives you a, a positive mindset, yeah. which 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 helps. So it, it falls in with that as well. And there'll be, there'll
0: be people listening today, Roy, who will, will have some struggles in the life. I mean, we all have struggles in our life. Mm. So there'll be people that listen and have struggles and say, well, that doesn't apply to me because if you... If you had my problems, if you had my ill health, if you lived my life and walked a mile in my shoes, then there's no possible way you could be positive. But I think I get the sense what you're saying is that it doesn't matter what challenge you have in your life. There's a choice you make about the thought pattern you can create. And if you are disciplined enough to even fake it, even fake that initial yeah positive thought because yeah. eventually that yeah. too will become a habit and yeah. turn into a cycle of positive
1: you, you on one of your podcasts recently talked about um two prisoners yeah in a room there's the example yeah what was he seeing he's seeing positivity which had an effect on yeah. on his brain and the way he was and an effect on it on his person and wasn't wasn't there but it was choosing to, yeah. to to see that and yeah it is difficult sometimes we live as, as we talked about before in a in a very difficult world but if you choose to go along that path and you choose to look for things where you can be grateful and how you can help others and the good things in life then it does mm. have have an effect and it is 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 an, a choice mm. now we're all faced with difficulties at some stage yeah and I'm not saying that we're not, and I'm not looking through it through rose-coloured glasses, but the way we choose to think about things is a choice for us. And we can choose to be positive about things or negative, but it has a massive difference, which, which you know, if you choose to be negative about things.
0: It has an impact whichever way you go. Yes. Yeah. 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 Interesting stuff. Okay. Well, I've got another question for you, and I love this question. And w- when I was kind of putting this question down, I was I was thinking about you in the sense that how many years I've known you and what a long list I would have for you on this one. So it's what gift or characteristic that you believe you have, would you love your children to have in their life journey? So identify something you believe is one of your gifts or characteristics of strength which one would you love to be able to kind of pass on to your children, to your boys and Rosie?
1: Well, I think we've touched on it in our discussion today. I I think patience, Mm. to be able to, um, yeah, have plans, know where you want to go, know what you want to do, but patiently see it through. And I think if they did that, I, I, I would be happy. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's it's, they say, don't they? Patience is a virtue, mm. um, and it goes on to say, I'm not sure how it is, but it's seldom found, you know, by in a lot of people. But I think if you can work at it, and you can think, and you can be sort of disciplined, yeah, that's that's the one I think would be important. Okay. And I hope I've I'm not always patient, but I hope I've learnt to be more patient than I, than I was as a younger person.
0: Mm. I mean, bit of a disclaimer here. None of us are perfect, are we? So None. sometimes None. when we talk about things like we've just been talking about, and you, you've just mentioned their characteristic patient. You know, some people's experience of you might be, oh, I, I can remember a time when Roy wasn't oh, patient. I'm but sure yeah, everybody yeah, can,
1: exactly. But I'm working towards it. Exactly. It's, it's work in progress. Yeah, 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 work in
0: progress. I like yeah. that. Yeah. What What makes you cry, or what makes
1: you sad, Roy? Um, that's a good good question. Um, In my job, I'm challenged with working with a lot of people who've got mental health issues, emotional issues. Um, And I think what makes me really sad is when I hear a young person that um, is self-harming or thinking about taking their own life. That really makes me sad because these people are, are, are young um, and they do have potential. There are things going on in their life that are good, but mm. for whatever reason, they're not not seeing that. Mm. And um, yeah, that, that makes me really sad. So I work hard to turn things around and help them and guide them and make sure that they do see the good things in their life and they are able to celebrate some of the good things. I think one of the problems with certainly some of the students that I I see, you know, in Blackpool is that they haven't received that attitude of gratitude that we've talked about. They've not received that love. They've Mm. not received the patience, the calm, all the characteristics Mm. that we would Mm. would see, say like in NBC, they haven't. So they become worthless and then they think their life's worthless. Well in actual fact, it's not, it's just the way that it's been looked at so when you actually show them a bit of time show them a bit of love show them a bit of kindness it kind of like switches a ball bond, and it's what they've been looking for mm. we have a as you'll know because you've studied nlp a concept in uh, in nlp called referencing mm. that's where you um are able to tell somebody something that's positive which we've talked about before about making them makes you feel good when somebody yeah. says something positive to you Yeah, right. Um, And basically, in order for a human being to survive and exist on the level of, you know, want and being being cared for and love, you should receive about six positive references to every one negative reference. A lot of these people I, I talk to when, they, when they're thinking about doing these horrible things is I don't think they're receiving any positive references from the friends, so-called friends, from the family, from the teachers, which is a shame because mm. there's none of them that haven't got things that are good. It's no. just that they haven't been seen and been recognised. Mm. So that, that makes me sad. Mm. That, that, that makes me sad. But I do not think about being sad. I think, right, what can we do to to help them? And how can we turn this around? And it all starts with what we're talking about before, about the way they're thinking, about appreciating themselves, about being able to manage how they feel about things in a better way and then have a look at the behaviour and manage the behaviour and see if we can change any of those things. Once we start changing a few, then life takes on a different meaning for them.
0: It feels like a really weighty responsibility Mm. you know that when i asked you what makes you sad you know talking about working with young people who are expressing suicidal ideation Mm. and you're working with them Mm. it feels really weighty it feels Mm. but you know
1: you know before when when you're saying about your faith and your purpose and what you do um Things in my life, I've not always understood why, but I think my faith helps me understand why. Okay. Because I've been given some abilities and sometimes I've not known why I've gone on a path. I think you helped me on one stage in my life when my daughter was quite ill. Can you remember when we had the, the burglars? I do, I do. And I said, Jeremy, I'm not sure what to do. And that was an inspiration where you said, leave it with me and you met, introduced me to Lisa yeah that then connected to why I studied NLP then I studied NLP that then led me to Mm. deal with people like my daughter had been who suffering like my daughter did so there's a reason there's a connection Mm. but then when you get in there and you and you work and you think well yeah it isn't it it is challenging and sometimes it can be difficult but this is what you are meant to be Mm. doing this is your purpose at this time
0: do you feel in safe hands yeah
1: I do Mm. I do and I, I I've got lots of people around me if I need uh, advice, uh, and as I say, the the, the more experience you get, mm-hmm. um, uh, the more that you can help, or if you can't help, know where to get help, mm-hmm. understand the systems, and yeah, if you know, if I've just saved one person's life or helped to save one person's life, that's that's great. I'm not looking to be. A savior or a saint or anything like no. that. I'm just looking to do what I can do for these people. But going back to your original question, yeah, it, it does make me sad mm. when when they actually mm. come and say that. And and quickly, I've got to start getting the positives going mm. and getting them feel a bit better about themselves.
0: Well, I'm not I'm not sure how many people have thanked you for that work, Roy. But yeah, you know, just a big thank you for for working with with those vulnerable kids and and I know adults too in Blackpool over the last twelve years. I mean, you know, we've both worked in education, so I know firsthand what that's like and what Mm. those kids' experience is like. Mm. Uh, And oftentimes you're the one, actually, you're the only person in school or in the community that's giving them an ear Mm. and giving them a sense of of, a feeling listened to. Mm. Um, So thank you for that because yep. I think sometimes it's a thankless task
1: well I appreciate that <laughs> yeah, Jeremy yeah, well, yeah I'm, I appreciate
0: I'm, it I'm sure you've done an, an incredible job and you know you talked about seed planting uh, I'm pretty sure there'll be plenty of seeds planted you might not see the results and the fruit of your labour but mm. certainly a lot of seeds planted so um, a couple of other things then just before before we wrap up if, if I may yeah um what frustrates you most about others or or kind of a frustration in life? So, I mean, it, it needn't be something ultra deep, but is there something that gets you goat? Something that frustrates you in the world that winds you up?
1: Uh, let me think. Yeah. I think one of the things that frustrates me is how judgmental My. some people can be. Making judgments about people, categorising people. Um, How can I give you an example? Well, I will give you an example in that I get frustrated when people talk about Blackpool in a not-too-nice way. What do I mean? Well, yeah, Blackpool's got really nice areas, it's got really nice people, it's got challenging areas, it's got vulnerable people. But a lot of people that make these judgments, not from here. Not from that, Um It upsets me hmm. because I don't think they understand what's going on or where these people are coming from or what they're trying to achieve. Um, I work a lot, as you know, in schools and some of the reputations, some of the schools, get is completely unjust they're being judged and people don't even understand what's happening no. I don't like that no. I think you know have a look get in there go and search do what you actually can but don't be judgmental rather than being judgmental find out how you can support mm. what you can do mm. to help so that that's a bit of a frustration mm. I, can um, I think we all do it as humans of course we do that's part of who we are to judge but I think it's very dangerous to actually judge other people, or groups, or societies, when you haven't got a real depth of, of knowledge and uh, and un- an understanding about what's going on. I mean, you in your work, you understand what I'm talking about here because you deal with a lot of vulnerable people, uh, and you hear things said about them and stuff like that. And and I know you've been a great advocate and, and friend of people who, who are having difficult times.
0: Yeah yeah i know i can com- i completely empathize with you about about the blackpool issue i mean blackpool's had a kick in for a long long time long time um and and other places too have you know they hit the press and then suddenly everybody has an opinion and judgments are made and then suddenly you know you you'll you'll say you're from blackpool or you say you're from a certain area and and people will make a judgment about you based on where you've come from. Mm. So that that judgment isn't just about the place, but it's about the people themselves before you've even got to know them and you know, everyone has their story and that's not fair because mm. you're not enabling people to give their account of themselves and what their journey's about. So I, I completely understand and agree with you. Massive frustration. So one of one of the big questions that um I, I suppose is spoken about on podcasts is around purpose and I know you, you've talked today about purpose and you, you've said that your purpose emanates from your faith quite mm. clearly and thanks for that Um. so you, you clearly know what your purpose is but what advice would you give to people who are listening today who don't know what their purpose is because some say things like well, how, how do you find it? You know, what, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to sit under a tree and, you know, wait wait for it to drop. Mm. Uh, there's a, a guru online who says purpose is a modern concept to give meaning to life. I don't know what you what your view is on that. Mm. But what, what would you say to people who don't know how to find their purpose?
1: I think a lot of people are in this position but i always because somebody's asked me this before i always go to the top end of the neurolog- neurological levels model which i learned in nlp and i think it kind of like throws some some life light on this question not sure what it totally answers it but this is what i do start to understand if you can what you believe and value Start with that, What 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 is it that you believe and value? Yeah, Yeah? From that, attempt to work out your identity and where you fit into your beliefs and values. And I think from that, if you keep studying and keep working at it, you'll find out what your purpose is, yeah? So what do I believe? What's important to me? What do I value in life? So, I don't know, let's say you believe and value nature, you love animals. That might then give you an identity whereby you say, I want to do everything I can in my life to protect God's animals and creatures and make sure that they're sustained on the earth. That then might lead to your purpose of working um, with animals. Or working in a wildlife preservation society, or travelling around the world seeking the best way to help animals—just an example. But mm. that's the way I'd, I'd come at it. Quite
0: systematic.
1: Yeah, yeah. Rather than just saying, because um, sometimes if you if you're religious, it may may come the way I've talked about it. But not everybody is religious. But mm. it doesn't mean that you can't find a purpose. No. But that's just one way I would think you may get into it.
0: Mm, absolutely. So you you've used the word why a few times this afternoon, mm. and the power of why it, it's mm. a, it's a big one for me. Mm. It's really important when I when I listen to people, I'm always trying to identify the why. Mm. Um, talk talk to us a little bit about the power of why for you. What, what is it about that
1: concept? Ooh, again. I think, you know, doing my, what was it, I think maybe master practitioner and NLP, that was a question that was asked why, how, what, and what next. Yeah. And people have a preference, don't they? And and my preference is why and what next. So I always like to know why, why something's happening and then what's happening next. I'm not too big on how and what. Um, Good question, Simon Sinek. Sinek. Yeah, yeah. Um, read about his Power power of Powerful Why. Power of Why, yeah. Yeah. Great book. Um, I think if you are going to um, influence, change, move, it's very difficult to do that unless somebody understands why. Mm. Sometimes people start with how, so you might get a YouTube and it's how you change your drain or, you know, or it might say what and it might show you what equipment. So they go straight in at that angle. But the big question would be, why do you need to change the pipe? Is it you that needs to do it? You know, so in other words, if you get a why for something, you can understand the reason, the logic, and that then leads to more motivation, shall we say, mm. which then leads to more sort of action. Mm. But I think it's it's important. I can just remember a story of a, a, a teacher in school, and he used to say, I'm sick of these kids. They're always asking me why, why, why. <laughs> and then another member of staff was just drinking his tea said, look, that's the best question they can ask you. Yeah. And... And, and so, I, you know, I, I do believe that. And if if I'm explaining something in, in life coaching or in coaching or to anybody, I try to give them the why. I hope that's answers your question. No, it
0: I'm does. Sure. I, no, it does. I mean, you're preaching to the converted here. But I think sometimes we, we miss that because we go straight to the how or we go straight to the what. We want information and we want to know how to do it. But I, you know I just encourage people to, to think about the why but the way I like to look at it and I've pinched this from from an old boss of mine. He said when you ask the why or when you deliver the why, what you're actually delivering is is a a, a method or a scaffold so that all the information that's going to follow can be attached to that scaffold. So, it's like, like a structure that. in the mind. So, if you give the why, you're giving the structure in the mind. So, mm. all that information can hang on that structure. So, imagine you don't give a structure, all the information just jumps, just falls to the bottom. Mm. You know, some might stick up, but some, a lot of it will be buried. Mm. And I, I always, you know, I'm a very visual person because I like, I like that. Mm. I like the notion of why. So, I'm always asking why. And I mm. knew and, and you, you would have a view on it. And um, yeah, no, f- thanks for sharing that. So we're gonna we're gonna start a tradition on off the court, Roy. So um, this is the the last question I've got for you. And the tradition that we're starting with today is um, all my guests are going to be asked to contribute one nugget, one final nugget. So a nugget is a small bit of wisdom that we can take with us in our toolkit of life. So if you could go back to the start, what single piece of life advice? would you give yourself?
1: Hmm. Yeah. Um. I think that when I look back on my life, so say I'm on my deathbed and I'm going to leave the planet, it would be that I could look back on my life and that I had made a positive difference in the world. So if I impacted the world positively, helped others, helped others to achieve the potential, then, yeah, I would be happy.
0: So the advice you'd give would be,
1: um, make sure in your life that you positively help others in the world
0: well this is uh, Jeremy Menino on Off the Court with Roy Blake and there's your piece of advice thanks very much Roy for joining us this afternoon thanks it's been for great. having
1: me thanks thanks a lot Jeremy All right.
0: well thanks for tuning in to Off the Court with, um, with Jeremy Menino interviewing Roy Blake today I feel like having reflected on our time together, I missed so many great opportunities, but please forgive me guys, Um, it's my first time through. But when I listened back, I wanted to know so much more about Roy's absent father and how that had an impact on him. Um, The decisions he made quite early on in his career to, to pile on so many responsibilities juggling full-time jobs with the birth of the the most incredible moment he described as the most joyful moment, the birth of his daughter, but at the same time, running a basketball um, club, um, be an up and down the country experiences and how he reconciled that. I wanted to explore that more. What struck me about some of the things that, that Roy said was that how many times he returned to the notion of a sense of calm uh, and I wondered whether that was a feeling of security gave to him. He returned to the the virtue of patience so many times and of course he returned so many times to his faith and I failed there didn't I in, in exploring what his faith truly means to him and how he can reconcile faith in a world of 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 contradictions and and challenges that we live in today and i guess the 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 biggest missed opportunity for me was really have getting his perspective on what it's like um, growing up in blackpool as a black man um, and some of the the race issues he may or may not have experienced and just getting his view on on so those are my reflections a bit of a a bit of a um a moment of truth for me and i thought i'd share that with you because as we go through this process of of getting to know different people and and sharing their stories i think it's it's right and proper for me to to share my my views as i do it i mean it was a wonderful time sharing it with roy um and i'm sure there will be a part two i hope you enjoyed it i hope it's provided a little bit of discussion for you and your loved ones and um, feel free to, to offer me feedback whenever you can. All right, tune in soon and we'll see you very soon. Take care.